the power of children's drawings in an adult world gone mad. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. We've all heard the expression, the child is father to the man. Over the years, its meaning has become clearer to me. There's wisdom in the untarnished humanity, the artistic creativity clinging naturally in children to an irresistible urge for freedom, for simple sunshine, air and water, food and shelter. Such things seem to be irrelevant to alleged grown-ups who've oftentimes focus greedily on ever new and more deadly weapons to kill more and more people more quickly and efficiently. But humanity has a way of resisting and asserting itself, often through the art of innocent children who find themselves caught up in the mad violence rained down on them from the adult world. This is not abstract for hundreds of thousands of children of refugees today. Family separations, deportations, border crossing, violence and deaths, marauders roaming deserts to actually dump out water that's been put there by kind people to help these seriously dehydrated immigrants. That's incredible cruelty. To say nothing of health care and education all people deserve, no matter their status. In her new book, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children, our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive today, author Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega, shares important, powerful examples of speaking truth to power. Hmm, What a concept. Then again, oftentimes, mere words are not sufficient. Artistic creations can be far more effective expressions of humanity in the face of inhumanity. Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega is an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in the Department of Chicano Chicano Studies. Her research highlights the understudied pre-adolescent children of immigrants, both U.S.-born citizens and undocumented immigrant children. More broadly, Sylvia is also concerned with issues of structural inequality, immigration policy, mixed-status families, trans-border relations, undocumented youth and children, and arts and activism through performance and digital media. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Sylvia. Thanks for having me, Bert. Well, I, I will tell you, it's it's a slight diversion, but on preparing for the show, I was personally brought back to a World War I museum I visited in Verdun in 2019. It was not made by a child, but on display among the various military uh, equipment was a handcrafted mandolin made on the battlefield. The body, uh-huh. the body of the mandolin was a soldier's helmet. The, and it just blew me away, the insistence for humanity to not be erased, though in a time of horror and industrial slaughter the indomitable human spirit in the face of unthinkable adversity. I, I just, I was really moved by that, that uh, artistic creation. Just 
just putting it out there somehow. How did this book come to be? You, you're not only a, a researcher interested in immigration and children, but as a former undocumented minor yourself. Tell us about that experience and its impact on your current work. Yeah, Bert, I think you said it so beautifully that out of moments of pain, anguish, stress, fear, uh, we go to art to make sense of our world, to make sense of those experiences, and to try to understand ourselves and humanity at large. And that was, you know, how this book was born. I was doing work in a community with many immigrant children at an after-school program. And I just kept seeing that different weeks, children would come in and say that their dad is missing, that they are scared to go to school because the sheriff was doing raids in the community. Mm. And when it was time to create a mural about um, anything that the children wanted to do, I asked, what do you all want a mural about? And one of the kids said about peace. And I said, that sounds great. Uh, can you tell me what peace looks like? Mm. And he said, peace looks like Sheriff Jorapayo shaking hands with a Mexican. Mm. <laughs> and it really struck me that in the moment, you know, when they are fearing for their family safety and unity, mm. they wanted to express this through what they wanted to see in the community through this mural. And unfortunately, the mural was something they weren't, they didn't allow us to do at the community center because it was going to be controversial. Mm. And so then I asked the kids, tell me why this mural is important to you. You can do, uh, you can write a letter, you can make a drawing, whatever it is, but tell me why this matters to you. Because of course they were really upset after and I collected so many drawings that were so powerful and stories and poems and letters to the president that I knew that I wanted as many people to see this. And this was in 2008. And since then, I've gone on to collect drawings from children also in California um, during a different political administration from children of other um, countries of origin. And I have to tell you that I, I'm never tired of looking at those images because it always amazes me the power that children have to express themselves, especially about things that are so scary for many adults. Mm. And, and, and the freedom that, that just, uh, I, I'm a long way from being a child, I assure you. And I think, uh, you know, just being able to get in touch so directly and so immediately with with the wishes and the the images of of what freedom feels like and the idea of shaking hands with sheriff joe arpaio boy that's some creative thinking out there <laughs> <laughs> yeah well for those who may not know him he's he's not a nice guy he's i i think it's fair to say he's kind of a racist and you know anti-immigrant to put it mildly uh so us immigration policy as it is carried out on our southern border today and historically constitutes what you call legal violence witnessed and experienced by children. What, what current immigration practices fit that description? And the, the experience of, of violence by children, yikes, that's some heavy stuff. So what current immigration practices fit that description? 
Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. Um, legal violence is a theoretical concept mm. that scholars have created to really capture how laws can be destructful and harmful and violent, and yet the general public accepts them because they're in the name of our so-called um, national security mm. or safety in general. And so, for example, um, mm. Sheriff Joe Arpaio, going back to him, um, he called himself the toughest sheriff, America's toughest sheriff. And he would do these media campaigns and go to places of work where uh, undocumented immigrants are mainly employed and conduct workplace raids. And for example, one instance, um, there was a raid at a car wash and um, a little girl who was nine years old at the time was watching the news <clears throat> with her aunt and basically witnessed both her parents who worked at the car wash getting detained. And she became, you know, traumatized, stressed, all of the things that can happen when you see your parents and your family just in danger in this way. Um, but she also was one of the first people to ask President Obama for administrative relief for her parents. And moments like this constitute legal violence. And more recently, I mean, in just uh, 2018, President Trump had the zero tolerance policy of immigration along the border, which meant that people coming uh, specifically from Central American countries mm -hmm. asking for asylum, seeking refugee status, um, were detained at the border rather than allowed to come in, which is a legal uh, right that they have. Yes. And after that, they basically were separated um, and the children were separated from their parents. And in the writing about the zero tolerance policy, it's recorded that they specifically used separation as the point of the law. The, the point of it was to be cruel. It was to cause suffering so much so that people thinking about coming to the U.S. would reconsider. That was the goal of this policy. And sadly, many of those children, about a third, you know, have been released, but almost a thousand children still today in 2023 remain separated from their parents um, and detained. I can't imagine. And, it, you know, of course, it makes me think of the term illegal aliens. Like, illegal, nobody's illegal. I'm sorry. It, that bothers me a lot, you know, to call somebody <laughs> illegal. And, and these, these children... You talk about uh, uh, legal violence being locked up in those cages that everybody saw. And I, I can't imagine the, the pictures and the drawings that, that these kids must have. I mean, they know that it's not right, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. They must have had some interesting drawings from uh, being locked in those cages. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I always appreciate about working with children is that we all, in from an early age, are taught these values of love, mm -hmm. of respect, of care, of appreciation, of um, just extending respect to one another, um, the golden rule, right? And children are are not... 
afraid of pointing out the hypocrisy of those values when we see such terrible suffering in the world. Um, and so for them, it's a huge injustice because they're taught all these all these wonderful things and then see their families being treated not only like second class citizens mm. or like dehumanized, but they don't have the language to say we're being dehumanized, but they do say things like we're being treated like animals, which is something that constantly came through, through the journal entries that they did, through the drawings, um, through the descriptions and the theater performances. Mm. They constantly talked about being made to feel like they didn't matter and that they weren't human that they were criminals and that they were like animals. And so all of this is dehumanizing, just like the term illegal, which, you know, the the idea of illegality and, and being illegal doesn't get associated with someone who's like jaywalking or getting pulled over. Um, but this act of being in the country without citizenship has been used to dehumanize people who are undocumented. Undocumented is not exactly the same thing as being illegal, that's for sure. And I have to wonder about, uh, you know, th there's drawings, but there's also uh, other ways of, of acting out. There's there's puppet shows and things like that, and I, I can't help but think that uh, there may be other ways of, of, you know, expressing the hope that pff, the good values that, that we're kind of born with uh, uh, are, are still there. Yeah, I mean, one of the um, tools that we used in theater mm -hmm. was was having them act out the scenarios that were important to them and scary. So I would have them go home and watch the news or listen to the radio and then tell me what was the most important news story that you heard about. And then we'd go around mm -hmm. and people would share different stories. And then we'd say, pick one that worries you the most and then we'd create a skit about that mm. and then that moment allowed for them to physically embody the scenarios that most scared them and to think through what could be done to create dialogue about why these things are bothering us or are causing us this fear and through that practice and process of creating art or embodying art, um, there were moments of not only, you know, understanding and coping and calm, but also laughter and joy uh -huh. and, you know, satire, especially when it was about really scary things about politicians or policies. Um, theater allowed for that and drawing allowed for that. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And more children should have access to that. Ah, yes, the power of art. And and you make me think of uh, growing up a, a, a white male in the, in the uh, mid-century. We loved our monster movies. Why do we love these, these kids? We loved our monster movies because we could laugh at them. These things were scary. Mm -hmm. They were scary. And, and we could, you know, the good guys win. That's, you know, it's, it's just part of human nature, I think. Uh, and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a subject that, uh, I don't know, people don't look at that often, but the the art of, of children who are uh, immigrant children, refugee children, who uh, are lacking freedom. Uh, our guest today is uh, author Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega, who has uh, a new book out, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. And 
I know regular listeners know I'm I'm a little bit focused on the First World War, but I'm also I've also talked about the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 39, and I've been involved with an organization dedicated to preserving the archives of the Spanish Civil War and the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, young men and women, black and white who fought against the fascists from America in the 1930s. Uh, there's, what the archives does is tell stories of that little-known war for republic against fascism. In 2007, I'm getting there, in 2007, I went to an exhibit called They Still Draw Pictures. About mm. 3,000 children's pictures of their experiences of that brutal war. The artwork was considered to be an important tool to help the kids deal with the traumas of war and separation from their families. Many of the pictures were a wished for peace and normalcy of home, preserving on paper what they might never see again. And they drew hope for the future out of their inhuman present day. So that's just, it's its part of human nature. And child is father to the man. We got a, a lot to learn from kids. And in, in terms of factors that go into decision-making relative to refugee and immigration policy. Where, where in the pecking order of, of how these decisions are made do the needs of, of the children fit in? I mean, family separation policies are built, you argue, on the implicit belief that children's lives are disposable. Please talk about this. Yeah. I mean, we like to believe that we value children, that we value childhood, that it's a time of innocence and beauty and possibility. And we do a lot to protect that as we should. And at the same time, there's incredible suffering from children, specifically children of color, black children, immigrant children, and many other children. And so these values aren't aligning with what is happening in society. And for example, thinking about um, Tamir Rice, the idea that a child is constructed as this adult and it has culpability in their own suffering. Um, I mean, President Trump in one of his speeches said that Central American children were future criminals. Yeah. And this idea of, of placing this like danger and um, this fear in society in general about this, these children and population really complicates our, our ideas about do we live up to our values of protecting children, all children? And I think this makes evident that we don't and we often fail and uh, we definitely could do better. But, you know, children are very astute in seeing the suffering that is happening in their communities. And because of that, have become spokespeople of those movements. Like, for example, the nine-year-old that I talked about, Catherine Figueroa, um, became an activist from seeing her parents detained and deported. Uh -huh. And we see other children in, in other movements also speaking up um, to end the suffering of people in their communities. And while this is powerful and moving, it's also unfortunate because it should not have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah, they shouldn't. Uh, to see, I mean, because what what can you do if if you see your parents, you know, treated uh, clearly unjustly? Uh, you're not going to just. It's unlikely you're just going to sit there and take it and think, oh, I'm I'm worth less. 
You know, my life <sighs> is disposable. P the kids are just, it's not going to happen in my opinion. And it's easy to recognize these children as victims, passive, without any agency of their own. You challenge that commonly accepted framing. Please tell us, please, how your work with them across various art modalities over the course of a decade has actually shown something different, that they are indeed active agents of their own stories, able to reimagine situations in ways that adults oftentimes cannot. Yes. Tell us more. Absolutely. I mean, uh, thinking about traditional disciplines and research on children, you read often um, these narratives that children, yes, are suffering and that they've gone through these incredible, incredibly difficult things and that they're victims and therefore we should care. And I think that there is a place for that research and it's very valuable and important. And I also think that children's voices should be elevated themselves. What I found in doing this work is that I also tried to emulate some of that traditional scholarship and working and research in that I would interview kids who I taught in class and known them for months. And I asked them like, hey, tell me about what you talked about in class about the time that your mom was detained and then you and all your family had to go live with her in Mexico and that you came back and that's why you were struggling in school. And I, I asked, how did this make you feel? And the student said, I don't know. And then I followed up with another question and they said, yes or no. And so they'd give me one word answers to stories that they had deeply described through a drawing or through creating theater. And I realized that we are speaking to them in a way that is understandable for us, but not in a way that's easy for them to communicate in because they often feel like maybe there's a right or wrong answer or an adult is asking me a question rather than just giving them the space and the opportunity to tell their own story. If I say, tell me about what you did this weekend, for example, and, and this is a real example from one of the classes, um, and students just did a drawing of what they did that weekend, and it happened to be Mother's Day. And so kids went around sharing, I went to dinner with my mom, or we had a celebration, or we did the special thing. And then I collected all the drawings, and one of the drawings uh, was a portrait of a mom, and in it underneath said, I haven't seen my mom in two years because I can't see her. She lives in El Salvador. And so through just talking with children, you miss so many opportunities to really capture how how their emotions and thoughts are very complex and they are able to grasp, you know, these very tough uh, concepts and ideas and, and experiences. And through art, I feel like my job was to be a bridge to gather these drawings and these stories and these um, art pieces and just show them to people so they can see directly from children what they feel, what they experience, what they want us all to know. And that does communicate quite, quite directly. I mean, you don't need words necessarily. So how do these, I mean, are, are, are these uh, 
kids who are uh, undocumented, for example, do they get to go to schools here in on this side of the border? Uh, do the schools encourage this kind of thing? Are there programs that that are there to actively help, you know, encourage the kids to, to draw their feelings? Well, I mean, there there's two things. There's children who already came to the U.S. with their families and are immigrant children. Mm-hmm. And then there's children who are children of immigrants. And what we know is that there are 5.5 million children who have at least one undocumented parent. And of that number, 4.5 million are children who are U.S. citizens. And so this is, it's a complicated um, concept because there's children who are arriving and there's children who are already here and have never been anywhere else and have gone to schools their entire lives here. And uh, unfortunately, schools are not prepared to deal with children who are stressed about or fear, uh, have fears about immigration or anxieties about policies um, of any sort, honestly. It's not just about immigration, but about the many things that society is dealing with at the moment, um, be it climate change or violence in Black community, that that police brutality specifically, um, or gun violence. And so schools not only aren't unprepared for the psychological implications of having children who are stressed and therefore can concentrate or are suffering academically. Um, And they also, unfortunately as well, don't have the resources Mm -hmm. to create art programs or art classes. And what what is saddest about this is that the children who need it the most in communities of color with low resources and are in marginal schools um, are the ones that need these resources the most, while children who live in communities that are well-funded through property taxes um, have wonderful programs and amazing supports at school. Um, But unfortunately, that isn't the same for all children. Boy, you talk about investment decisions, where the money is going to pay off. Uh, it doesn't seem to apply in these schools, you know, that, you know, it, it, would, it would be so much better. I mean, it's, it's you know, it doesn't take a great deal of, of thinking to figure that, you know, investing in, in, in areas where the kids are really traumatized and don't have, have access and, and are fearful that, golly gee, that would be a good thing to invest in to make uh, our society... Uh, you know, safer and more coherent and, and, and stronger economically. But no, it rarely seems to happen. We, you know, we, we've seen the pictures of of the kids in the cages, which I think upset virtually every American. There's some people I don't hang out with who it probably wouldn't upset. But uh, the, the, the heartless practice of family separation as a tactic of control it may be new to a lot of us, but it's actually not new. It's what you consider, quote, a very American practice. Yikes. Say more about its history in this country, please. Yeah, I think this is one of the uncomfortable truths that we need to uh, own up to and acknowledge because otherwise what we see is that it continues to happen. And 
what I what I'm talking about really, we see what is happening now and we think this is horrific. Children right. who are vulnerable and are escaping these horrible things are coming to the US seeking a better life with their families and not only separated from their caregivers uh, at all ages, even toddlers and babies, but also placed in these in these essential cages um you know with with horrible freezing temperatures and such and we think this is horrible how could this happen we are the united states the land of opportunity the 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 place where people seek freedom and we are all immigrants and at the same time this is not old for example i talk about you know um japanese internment camps mm-hmm where Japanese families were also separated, not only from their communities, from their jobs, from their schools, from society that, you know, we all just imagine, you know, a whole population um, abducted essentially and placed in these internment camps, losing their homes, losing everything. Um, And think we can go back further and think about um, the Indian schools, Mm. the boarding schools, um, what is so horrific, just in 2020, we found massive grave sites of children specifically, that these children were also taken from their families, from their tribes, from their communities, and placed in these schools to become Americanized. And these were, uh, so many people agree, the first public schools of the United States, um, which were meant to Americanize and strip Native people of their culture, language, religion, beliefs, and families and identity, and just given a new American identity. Mm. And and also, you know, of course, enslavement, where children were literally property to be sold and taken away from their mothers and families. And so this is all um, part of a horrific history that we share in this country, and that unfortunately isn't, isn't changing. Um, Time goes by, and uh, we like to believe that things have changed, but we see that it it remains the same, um, unfortunately. Wow. Well, you got some good points there, and I I can see why there are those forces on the right who don't want us to learn history so that we can keep doing these these horrible, horrible things. Um, And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about kids. You know, they're not things to be discarded. The uh, children of of immigrants, of refugees, who are, uh, they're they're not given a lot of power, but they do these drawings. They find ways to express themselves. And an interesting new book uh, by our guest today, Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega, Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. Now, the... The educational values that I was lucky enough to grow up with are not widely shared today. Critical thinking. It seems to be valued far less than going along, buying into dominant themes and official myths. School budgets are often on the chopping block, and some argue that art in schools is unessential, if not merely frivolous, art and music. (laughs) Tell us your thoughts on that. Why do you consider it indispensable? Yeah, I would agree. And I would say that we think about art as a luxury, Mm. as an added bonus to 
our our productivity. We work so hard. I'm going to treat myself and go to a play or buy a beautiful art piece or read a book that is a poetry book. And instead of thinking as, you know, elemental parts of our lives that enrich our lives and make them so much better and that really create a way of uh, a mirror for us to see our society, to see ourselves, um, to see the things that are often uh, unspoken. And what I found in being an art educator in many public schools is that art is often relegated to the end of the day after math and science and history. And those are very important subjects. But art is something that if you behave in class and if you're Uh, did your homework and followed instructions and did everything right, then you could go to uh, the after-school art class. And kids who misbehaved or who didn't do their homework or wear their uniforms were punished by not uh, given art class. And that always was a huge red flag to me because I believe that children who are struggling and who have a hard time are the ones that really need it the most. All children need it. All children uh, need art in their lives. And art really helps facilitate communication and learning and calm and so many positive things that humans need, um, especially for children who are struggling. And unfortunately, like I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, there has been a drastic defunding of arts through the last number of decades um, to the point that I worked in an art school and this elementary school that was focused on arts didn't have art classes um, until there was a a huge grant that happened and all of these things mobilized to bring art to the school. And then after a number of years of having art, all of that funding was gone again. And we have an art school without art and that in the United States seems like just an impossibility that we don't have enough funds for children to do things like theater or dance or pottery or, you know, play an instrument. Um, and it's, it's a sad fact that uh, we don't have that in many schools, especially schools where um, disenfranchised black and brown children attend and in poor communities, we, some are even struggling to have food and, and uh, you know, proper buildings and things like that. So unfortunately, art is always the first thing to go when um, it's such an elemental part of, of our existence and our lives. I wonder if one were to, you know, be able to, to gather a sample of where art is funded in schools and where it's not, uh, if the demographic of that would be as I suspect it is, you know, that, uh, you know, white, uh, nice, uh, upper, you know, middle class uh, areas have, have art as built in, whereas uh, for the, the kids in the, uh, you know, more distressed areas, not, there's no time for art. You got to learn a, a trade or whatever, or, you know, and, and it just, it dehumanizes. Damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just dehumanizes. Uh, and art, helps initiate and further the process not only of healing from trauma, you say, but also exploring solutions to that which causes trauma in the first place. 
How so? Tell us about that, please. Yeah. I, I, one of the other things I would add about oh, sure. uh, your previous question is that um, if definitely art in school is essential, and even when art isn't as uh, pronounced in many classes in many schools, often parents that have the means are able to uh, enroll their students in extra or their children in extracurricular activities like a music lesson or dance or even sports and other things. And so that's another way that, you know, depending on, on what class you come from or how much money your family makes, it determines the opportunities that you'll have with art. Um, and, you know, thinking about your, this question, why is art essential for healing and dealing with these things that immigrant children are experiencing? Um, if I can, I'd like to tell you one of the, the situations that happened in one of the classes. Sure, please do. Um, so we were talking about one of the kids talked about Trump and the wall. Um, and we started talking about that. And I had two students who were cousins in the class and they had a family member who was 17 years old and was coming from El Salvador, crossing through Mexico to get to um, California. And basically one of the, the students started crying and told us that they found out that their cousin had died on the border and that they didn't know that it happened until they saw it on a, on a news story in the Spanish channel. And so they talked about this cousin whose name is Alex. And the class was also so moved by this. They started telling, trying to comfort them, but also telling stories about their own experiences with loss and death and um, pain. And we, we had a moment to talk about it, to process. We had like a quiet time to write about our, our reaction to this or our feelings about it, where I was able to go and check in with these two students. But then we went on and, you know, did icebreakers and mm -hmm. started thinking about other things. Months later, we were creating a final performance that we were, we were going to showcase in front of the school and in front of the parents and everything. And these children, I asked them, what should, we, what should we do for our final play? And one of the kids said, oh, okay, uh, I have an idea. Um, and basically, they recreated the story of Alex in the play. And instead of dying on the border, they created a fictional character named Alex, again, that gets accompanied by a group of other children across the border. And they have this magical half human half um, coyote creature that also is assisting assisting them through the dangers of the border and in the play they they find trump at the border who's checking on the border fence and because he's in the desert he has allergies and sneezes so powerfully that his wig falls off when he sneezes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a, a hilarious moment. Not only f children thought that was the funniest thing they'd they'd ever encountered. Um, and when we actually performed this, everybody uproared with laughter in that moment. And I realized that just like you mentioned, you know, we watched these scary movies or these like good guys versus the bad guys or these magical creatures because we're trying to get some release of the fear that we have 
about these um, characters. And children needed a release about of the fear that they feel about Trump. And in poking fun at, at just his hair and, and that he had allergies really transformed the relationship with fear that they had. In that moment, it was it was so funny that they were able to feel a little bit of empowerment to not be so scared and to just see him also as a human being and not an almighty, all-powerful entity. And so without having an opportunity to do art, to do a theater exercise, to talk about what children were experiencing, I feel like this moment wouldn't have happened. And what I saw was that the two kids whose cousin had passed away were two of the children who helped the character of Alex in the play make it safely to California. Um, And so them themselves, they weren't able to talk about this at home because it was very painful for everyone. Uh But in class, they were able to help Alex survive and make it. And although that wasn't real, um, for them, I think it provided some some healing. An amazing story. That's just, uh, uh, and, and I know from you know being involved in politics for a while that one of the things that powerful people in politics can't stand is being made fun of. It's so powerful. <laughs> it's so powerful, and it's uh, good for them. I have to say, good for them. And one of the things, you know, it, it's still. I've wondered about it, even though uh, the the former guy is no longer in power, the orange one with the hair, uh, (laughs) the mainstream media still, still routinely calls it an immigration crisis. That view is not shared by all. Obvious racist policies against certain groups of immigrants and refugees is one thing. But what do you say about the dominant media descriptions? Do they, not just the Trumpists, also feed what you call legal violence? Calling, I mean, just routinely calling it an immigration crisis. Comments on that, please. I mean, historically, the media has been so complicit with these ideas of dehumanization mm-hmm. and of creating narratives that allow for legal violence to take place. In the 90s, we had these ideas of of a, of a huge wave of immigrants just flooding our, our country. Um, and these ideas were, were depicted through images of people crossing the Rio Grande. Um, and all of a sudden, we had an, an increase of anti-immigrant policies that mm-hmm. accompanied these beliefs. Um, again, you know, Children are watching. Our children may not necessarily want to see the news or or really um, parents may not think they're paying attention, but they are and they're very perceptive. Um, and so laws have constantly evolved and changed. The language has changed, but the idea that certain kind of immigrants are unwanted mm. has remained. And it, we just have to look at our own border and see where the militarization is happening and see where the funds are being funneled to um, and think about where the deaths are happening. People are not dying crossing from Canada to the United States. Um, and I think that's to, you know, illustrates a long history of racist policies um, against migrants who aren't white specifically. 
Yeah, it does seem to be the case. It's it's pretty clear. Most Americans have no idea of the history between Mexico and the U.S. I, I feel like I have a lot to learn about that. The U.S.-Mexico border wall, you contend, was not originally erected to stop Mexican and Central American immigration. Tell us a bit about the literal and metaphorical history of the wall. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating you know, aspect of history because for many, many generations, the U.S.-Mexico border was not a wall and not a place of inspection and where you had to wait long hours to cross. It was just a line in the sand. And what that means is that people who would move freely between the United States and Mexico, they were called birds of passage because they would come into the U.S. when the crops were ready to be picked, and then they'd go back home, like most immigrants want to do, is just be in their homes with their communities in their country. And so this, uh, this you know, created a relationship between Mexico and the United States where uh, the United States received the labor that they needed and migrants would come, work, and then go back home. And what changed was um, the United States specifically wanted to keep Chinese immigrants out. And you create the border wall to specifically stop Chinese migrants from entering the United States through Mexico. That's why we have many Chinatowns that established along the Mexican border and into Mexico. Uh But this was accompanied by a policy called the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first time a policy outrightly banned a specific group. And so this is what I'm talking about. You fast forward to now and we there is a, a crisis and the crisis is is racism and white supremacy because we open with open arms. We accept um, Ukrainian refugees and migrants from countries, you know, um, who are white. But if they come from south of the border or black and brown countries or uh, or Chinese, as we saw in the 1920s and um, during that time, they're unwanted and they're a crisis and they're a danger. And all of these narratives become very popular um, and policies become restrictive. And all of that creates suffering. Uh, and the kids uh, feel it and have to do something with it. And as, as we all know, childhood trauma, it's it sticks with you the rest of your life. Oftentimes, it's often exceedingly difficult to treat Resilience is a much-referenced concept these days. It's an important trait, but you nevertheless note that resilience is not the antidote to the stress and trauma burdening immigrant children today. Why not? Talk about that, please. Yeah, sometimes we think, you know, oh, we didn't have it so easy and we turned out all right. Right. You know, we're okay. But, you know, we're not okay. (laughs) First... Um, And when it comes to children who are in fear of their families being separated and, you know, as a child, if you you depend on your parents and you depend on your caregivers for your survival and essentially being separated from them from them is death. You know, that's what it feels like to a child. And so to constantly have that fear, let alone the actual experience of being separated from a caregiver, which has devastatingly 
horrible consequences like um, loss of appetite, um, loss of sleep. They fall back in school. They can't concentrate. They have, you know, all of these physiological responses. But just the fear of that possibly happening also creates those responses. And over time, that becomes toxic to their bodies, to their their ability to be good students or, you know, just be happy children. And some people say like some, some children made it and they're okay. Mm. And some children are resilient and we just have to harness the resilience in children by helping them have mindfulness and these wonderful things in, in classes and after school programs and in families. And all of those things are necessary. And I agree to support, to have more of that. However, what that does is places the blame and the responsibility of being okay on children when, in fact, it's a very systemic issue. It's a a political policy issue that we create. And just as we create it, we can undo it. Um, And I don't think children should be responsible for their own healing when they are um, subjects living in in a systematically unjust society. Well, I'll say, and, and I can't help but wonder about the drawings that the kids do of, you know, the images that they know about the, the border patrol officers, the SWAT personnel, ICE mm-hmm. agents, those in law enforcement. Uh, they all, I, I would think they, they kind of blend in in the minds of these immigrant children. And I wonder about the, the effect of that. And you know, the long-term, what the drawings are, I can imagine, and and I can't, but what the long-term effects of that are. Yeah. I I mean, what I found in doing these drawings with kids and this work in general, I also interviewed their families. I interviewed the children themselves. Uh And what I found is that it didn't matter if it was a police officer, ICE, or security guard at at a pharmacy. They had the same initial fear when they saw these um, enforcement agents, because as soon as their family members have any contact with them for any reason, it could always lead to a detention and a deportation. And so this was an experience that came up in the drawings all the time. And, And it also is supported by other scholarship that children don't know the difference between these different agencies but nonetheless, they all represent danger to them instead of safety, instead of protection. Mm-hmm. And similarly, children who are U.S. citizens and whose parents have citizenship or permanent residency or are not undocumented but are um, Latino, they still had the same anxieties and still felt like they were unsafe and worried about their extended family members and even still thought that they themselves could be deported. And so children are trying to make sense out of, out of a very complicated thing. Um, and it's very difficult, but um, they're always paying attention. They're always very intuitive about this. Um, and we see all, we saw that in the drawings and we see it, you know, in the accounts of, of their stories. Yeah, I, I can imagine, and and this book obviously has has printed words in it. But I, what what, what will people see when they pick up this book? What kind of drawings uh, might there be? 
that might uh, impress people. Yeah. I mean, I was very adamant about including the images in color in the book. Uh-huh. Um, for those of you who know about publishing and printing, it's very expensive to print in color. But I really wanted readers to fully appreciate every single drawing because children had access to all kinds of materials, crayons, markers, color Mm -hmm. pencils, many sheets of paper. And they were very deliberate about how they drew these images. It's very natural and automatic for children to draw a typical smiling sun and a house and beautiful flowers and people smiling specifically that when when there's a frown when there's any deviation from that it's it's very intentional and so you'll see children Uh. uh, choose color very very specifically to depict emotions Um, you'll see children specifically use the tones the skin tones of people to drive down the points of who's in danger and who are they fearing Um, And I feel like all of these things are very powerful. So you see many drawings from children in Arizona. You'll see some depictions of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, Mm. of Obama, of Trump in California. And you'll see things that matter to them, like families and friendships and school um, and things that they worry about, too. So who is the target audience here? Who do you who who put who is publishing this book first of all? And uh what do you, what do you hope might uh, actually uh, come out of it? Yeah, the book is published by New York University Press. Oh, yeah, and the audience, I mean, besides everyone, right. <laughs> more right. specifically, I would say that I wrote this book in mind thinking about a general audience that may be unsure about how they feel about Uh immigration. Uh I, I also wanted it to be a a non-academic audience. I wanted a a regular person who doesn't need a, a, a PhD or master's degree to be able to pick up the book and to understand these historical and psychological and his just all complicated concepts and histories, but to be able to see their impact on children. And I also wanted uh, immigrants to see themselves in the book. I wanted this book to be a mirror, whether it's harsh or pleasant or painful, but nonetheless a mirror about our society and what what is happening. Um, and so I hope that folks pick it up and really consider children's stories um, and experiences. And, of course, all of us, uh, recent immigrants or not-so-recent immigrants, we are not powerless. We we can take action. And uh, one would hope that perhaps this could uh, spark some, uh, you know, uh, uh, pressure on politicians to make changes. Because, after all, who wants to—I mean, it takes a lot to make somebody get up and leave their home and their family and their community— uh, if you know people should be able to stay home, really, you know. But that's that's way beneath this, I, I guess. But uh, you know, we can we can make some changes. We are not powerless, and uh, it's important to understand what the impacts of our current policies are, and maybe we can actually change them. The book is called "Drawing Deportation: Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children." 
Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's author Sylvia Rodriguez Vega. Very interesting stuff, and uh, it's important for people to, to, to learn about this. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you, Bert. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.